Yeah. The key thing is, don't be inhaling, don't be ingesting. Stay inside, don't drink or eat anything. These are important questions. I understand that. Highest moment the last eight years. Hmm. Highest moment the last eight years. Well, I think that the most important, the most compelling was uh, was 9-11 itself. Welcome to the special live traveling edition of Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett on the web at truthjihad.com, where you can subscribe to all of these shows and get early access by way of Substack. Just go to truthjihad.com and click on the subscribe at Substack button. We have a great show coming up tonight. It's the eve of the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 false flag operation the mother of all false flags that sent our country on a downward spiral. And I'm not sure we've hit rock bottom yet, but we're getting there with Afghanistan blowing up on us. Turns out Kabul isn't Saigon. It's worse. And uh, nobody trusts anything the authorities say anymore for good reason. The COVID pandemic may be uh, much worse because of that. And then again, maybe not. Maybe skepticism is fully warranted. In any case, we're going to talk about all that stuff tonight. In the second hour, Vermont secessionist and longtime 9-11 truth activist and radio personality Jim Hogue, who's the author of the 9-11 truth classic narrative poem, Ballad of Ladder 5, will come on along with a new Truth Jihad Radio guest, Rowan Millar, who was at the 9-11 Truth Film Festival here in the Bay Area of beautiful California last night. So we'll be talking about 9-11 activism and COVID activism in the second hour. But in the first hour, let's get into some of the nitty-gritty about what did and didn't happen on 9-11 and how we know what we know. And how we know what we don't know. Oh, my goodness. I'm starting to sound like Donald Rumsfeld. Oh, man. When you're starting to sound like Rumsfeld, you know you're in trouble. Anyway, bringing on the illustrious former NASA scientist, Dwayne Dietz of Scientists for 9-11 Truth, or at least he's been arguing with Scientists for 9-11 Truth uh, about what is shown by the flight data recorder supposedly uh, found after the alleged crash of Flight 77 at the Pentagon. And I do think that we should respect the different points of view about what happened to Flight 77 and not jump to conclusions and dig in our heels too hard. So let's uh, try to approach this with an open mind and see what Dwayne Dietz, a very well-qualified scientific voice, has to say about this. Uh, At least I think we're going to. I just got word that we're having a hard time getting a hold of Dwayne. So uh, what can we do about that? He should be able, he should be showing up soon. Um, he, uh, perhaps his Skype is a problem. So here, let me just email Dwayne and tell him that his Skype isn't working. He needs to send a phone number, and then we'll be uh, sure to get him on. I guess I, I, should, I did already ask him, and he didn't send me his phone number. So I'm going to ask him again. Uh, and Dwayne, we need your phone number. Skype is not working. Okay, and hopefully we'll we'll get him on here soon. See what happens. Okay, well, 
Dwayne Dietz is one of the more uh, respected, at least respectable and scientifically qualified voices who have done honest and skeptical investigations into 9-11. He's a physicist and an engineer. He's the former director of NASA's Dryden Flight Research Center's Aerospace Project. He's also the recipient of the NASA Exceptional Service Award and the Presidential Meritorious Rank Award in the Senior Executive Service. So he had a very uh, respectable career at NASA. Uh, <laughs> he's the one uh, former NASA person I know who it has an open mind, let's just say, about the Apollo missions. Uh, and that's, of course, another conversation. He has uh, challenged some of the 9-11 truth orthodoxy about uh, the Pentagon event. Uh, he showed us why it's maybe not as obvious as we once thought that no plane hit the Pentagon. We used to think that was obvious because there's no discernible wreckage there, at least very little. And what little there is seems like it could have been just strewn around by somebody with a bag in about five minutes. But it may not be quite that simple. And Dwayne has a good explanation of why that is. Uh, he's done very careful analyses of the various theories about what happened to the Twin Towers and compared them in terms of their uh, merits and their drawbacks. And he started that process with an open mind. He ended it with a pretty open mind, too. And that kind of open-mindedness is rare. In the 9-11 truth research community, there are a lot of people who get on their hobby horses and won't get off and think that anybody who disagrees with them is some kind of COINTELPRO plant. Well, Dwayne is, is not like that. He's very reasonable, rational and generally a good guy to talk to, which is wish, why I wish he were on right now so I could talk to him. Um, he did send me his new Skype, and uh, it should be working. I have no idea why it's not. It's completely bizarre. Um, but uh, we'll see if he figures out that we're not reaching him on Skype. Maybe he'll check his email. He'll figure out that he needs to send a uh, phone number. I don't believe I ever had his phone number, but I will check to make sure. Dwayne, where's your phone number? No, don't have his phone number. Hmm. You know, these uh, brilliant genius scientists and engineering types, sometimes uh, when they're challenged with things like getting in touch through Skype and sending a backup phone number, it makes you wonder. Uh, <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, I'm glad I'm from the humanities division of the university where we all have uh, common sense. <laughs> hey, there he is, Dwayne. Is that you? That's right. I couldn't remember remember my password. You know, you you genius scientists. Uh, <laughs> like I was saying, I, I sometimes wonder about you guys. Like, you know, you guys all think that we humanists are just a bunch of you know lame brained, uh, shallow thinking uh, people who don't even really belong in the legitimate university. But but frankly, Dwayne, after I used to, I, I, I spent years talking to engineers at the University of Wisconsin who were so completely not to put a fine point on it, uh, retarded about what they told me about the World Trade Center 
that I started being amazed that buildings are built that actually stand up. If these are the people behind them, uh, <laughs> but I'm glad you figured out how to get into your Skype account. Here we are. <laughs> well, I had to set up a new password. Okay. Well, I, I'll, I'll accept that excuse. <laughs> so, uh, you know, where do we start? You're, you're, uh, you've been discussing the issue of the flight data recorder data uh, with people from scientists for 9-11 Truth. And I should maybe start by mentioning that I was a, I was a keynote speaker at the 9-11 Truth Film Festival yesterday here in the Bay Area. It was at the Grand Lake Theater, a beautiful old classic theater in Oakland. And I scandalized the event by actually blurting out a few things I shouldn't have about COVID and vaccines and masks and stuff <laughs> um, because we had pr apparently the organizers had promised the theater owner not to do that. They totally had to revamp the entire lineup there to try to erase every kind of COVID skeptic uh, film and so on. But I couldn't resist saying a few things and I kind of got in trouble and hopefully I didn't cause the event to be permanently canceled. Anyway, at that event, um, Ken Jenkins, who is associated with some of the people at Scientists for 9-11 Truth, told us that the flight data recorder data plus the uh, cockpit voice reporter data and reports about what's on some of it that we can, cannot actually hear all add up to supporting the official story of what happened to Flight 93. So that was the most sort of challenging uh, presentation at the 9-11 Truth Film Festival. And so you're working on the same issue. That is, what are these flight data recorder uh data printouts tell us about what happened to these flights and you've been working on flight 77 and I guess you should take it from there because that's that's about as much as I know. Well I think I'll say that what we have found is anything but the official story. It may have ended with the same flight path at the end and I guess the flight path all along more or less the same. But uh, what actually went on from an aviation piloting standpoint, maneuvering through the sky, using the nav aids, are uh, very much different than anyone I know of expected. Interesting. So, so what what are some of the anomalies? Well, actually, let's back up and start by kind of framing the situation for listeners who may either never have known or have already forgotten. Uh, the basics of Flight 77, how it, it left Dulles Airport and flew over uh, Ohio, I think, and then uh, ostensibly was hijacked, turned around, and somehow it disappeared from all of the radar. Uh, transponder was turned off, but it still should have been visible on radar, but for whatever reason it wasn't. And so none of the relevant authorities, whether military or uh, civilian FAA, had any idea that it was heading back towards Washington, D.C. until it suddenly basically just appeared over uh, the Pentagon and then did a, a steep, extremely steep banking turn at high speed and came in basically clipping the grass to smash in the Pentagon at over 500 miles an hour, an extremely high speed for that low of a flight. And uh, a lot of there's, there are innumerable questions about this. And the biggest, most obvious one is how did Hany Hunter, a guy who could not even pilot a Cessna training aircraft, uh, do this amazing spiral uh, diving <laughs> turn into the Pentagon? Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, so so maybe from there you can explain how the flight data recorder that supposedly shows the data from this entire flight from when it took off to when it slammed into the Pentagon. Uh, 
it's in, that's interpreted as supporting the official story by people like Ken Jenkins. But you're saying there are some serious questions about what it shows. So maybe you can tell us what are those questions? Okay. Before I uh, say anything more, I want to first uh, acknowledge Warren Stutt, who is the a software analyst from New Zealand, who is the one who submitted the Freedom of Information Act request and uh, actually ended up receiving the the records that came from the flight recorder, the a disk that contained all that information. And most recently is the uh, individual Robert Bob Fisher, uh, a supreme analyst, uh, became interested in this recorder. That's very recent. He hasn't published any articles on it. He's just been very diligent at uh, working through all of the records and trying to uh, a, a sooth, trying to figure out what it tells us. Uh, it became really interesting. He started out looking at uh, the final leg heading down towards the Pentagon at very high speed and decided in order to figure out what was going on, he needed to get some information on what the plane was doing prior to that final leg. And so he started way back when the hijackers took over the plane, at least the point where it made its 180-degree turn and headed to the east. Uh, what he found was a lot of use of the NAV-AID system. There's the Air National uh, AIDS for, uh, they're both orienting the direction that the airplane is going relative to a standard on the ground, which is uh, VOR, which is uh, stands for Very High Frequency Omnidirectional Radio Range, VOR. And most everyone has seen them from time to time on the landscape. There'll be a kind of a white upside-down cone and if you looked at it from above, it would be have a radial about it. So that cone is a radio beam that's set out that the planes can tune into. It'll have a frequency that they they punch into their radio system. Uh, many of them, a majority of them, also have a DMR. It's a distance measuring uh, equipment. DME, I should say, DME. And what that does is it send, sends a radio signal and then the length of time for it to be received and returned is a measure of the distance from that measurement on the ground. Well, what he found is that there was very, there's two radio uh, transmitters in the airplane as standard equipment. Uh, one of those two was tuned uh, very at a very far distance beyond the horizon and and from a station that's not powerful enough to send a signal as far as the airplane was. 
so that kind of makes no sense. Why would they be doing that? Uh, you might guess it was because they didn't know what they were doing. But the more you look at the plane, it looks like uh, the planners, I'll just call them the planners, uh, knew very much what they were doing. They were very meticulous at what went on. So the question is interpreting what what that's there in the flight data recorder that makes sense and possibly other things that were going on that were not on the flight data recorder. So uh, there was a number of maneuvers at the first, at the very first part, where there was a change in frequency, which is change the frequency of these recorders of these radio transmitters. Uh, the frequencies were changing from different uh, ground stations around the airplane as it was flying kind of jumping from one to another, to another, to another. But that was only on the one radio that was not tuned uh, down near where the plane would eventually land. Well, with that one receiver, it still didn't make sense. Uh, and what was noticeable is that one of the nearby uh, transmitting stations of VOR slash DME, uh, it was never, uh, its frequency was never put into the radio. It was like, there's got to be some reason why the plane is not trying to receive this nearby uh, VOR DME station, but it's trying to reach all these other ones. And it really doesn't make sense. And then uh, Bob uh, theorized that it's possible that another radio was brought on board. Instead of a NAV-1 and a NAV-2 as basic equipment, we'll call it a NAV-3. Now, whether that was brought into the cockpit as a portable radio, uh, radio transmitter, or whether it was... Uh, used in some other manner. It's not on the data, re, uh, the flight data recorder, so we can't uh, determine any hard evidence of whether it was there and what it was tuning into. There's one other idea that Bob came up with. Uh, the radio frequencies that are dialed in are only sampled every four seconds on the uh, flight data recorder. So there, there is the possibility that something else is being done uh, in between that sample. There's uh, a possibility that it was on a faraway station that couldn't be used or only, only for that time when it was uh, being recorded by the data recording sampling. So those are unknown uh, questions. Uh, is, is there a human input on this? In other words, would the pilots be in charge of uh, what radio signal is being sampled or not? Well, there's one point where the, the frequency changed within four seconds. And the amount of 
punching in frequencies and uh, kind of manual entry is such that you really can't do that within four seconds, not not reliably, where you check to make sure your numbers are correct before you push them. And that very point makes it uh, the parent next thing that would happen is that the commands for those radio frequency changes were uplinked some in some manner. We can't tell how they would be uplinked. But there's uh, two different systems that might uh, be the means of uplinking. One is called an ACARS system, which is like an email system that's tied in with the manufacturer for one thing. And uh, it may be some other safety monitoring somewhere else that we don't know about. Uh, and there's another, an air ink link, which possibly would be the means of doing it, but we can't really tell. Hmm. Okay. So, so that kind of suggests the possibility or likelihood of uh, some form of uh, remote guidance being applied to this plane. Yes, it's it's more than just guidance. It's uh, we refer to it as, as a flight plan. A flight plan would typically have a lot of that kind of information uh, to make the pilot's job a lot easier. So if a flight plan is is being uplinked uh, and different ones on a a frequent basis. We can't really tell that from the flight data recorder. It's just a, a supposition that that's how things are being changed. But the fact that there are these suppositions about what might be going is the reason why our uh, some of our 9-11 Truth commercial pilots and even those that have flown the 757, uh, they're very uncomfortable about this this uh, kind of operation. Uh, one of them said it doesn't like anything he's ever seen in a cockpit. That's not that's not the way it happens in the cockpits. And that's in all of his experience in commercial flight. Uh, so, so so basically, he, he's saying that these um, links to the wrong kinds of uh, ground-based uh, systems are uh, are wrong, that that is not something that normally would happen in a flight? Well, it's more that the possibility that a, a third transmitter, nav transmitter, is carried into the cockpit and somehow connected up to the flight management computer because it's got to be tied in. It's got to have an antenna with it. That is just so far out of any kind of of uh, operation in the cockpit. It just doesn't happen in a commercial it, airplane. And is this something that could have been uh, installed ahead of time by somebody with access to the plane before it took off? Well, that could have happened. Uh, we don't uh, we don't like to we don't like to. Uh, make suppositions, and that would be a supposition. But even just to bring it up portable, and this is a supposition. And as soon as you get into the area of, 
of making suppositions without hard evidence, uh, that is, it's kind of going out on a limb. Now, well, 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 wait a minute. If, if there's yeah. a third, if there's a third uh, radio in there, it had to get there somehow. That's not that becomes not too much of a supposition if you're pretty sure there really was the third radio. Well, if it's not in your flight data recorder, then you don't have any evidence to show that it was there. That's that becomes yeah. a supposition. Okay. Okay, I'll just stop right here to say that as Bob was bringing these possibilities with a lot of evidence, a lot of detailed analysis. Uh, I was kind of resonating with what he found. I, I didn't find it as, obje as objectionable as the pilots. And I started wondering to myself, why is, why is that? Why am I not suspicious? And I got to thinking that it, it, it may have been because of my career in flight research, flight test, uh, where I have, through my career, been involved with a very wide variety of aircraft. Uh, some are very, very unusual, kind of uh, strung together in a, in a, uh, a kind of a jury-rigged fashion. They're not commercial flights. They, they don't have to be adhere to all of the rules and regulations of the FAA. And so I've just had the experience of seeing that a lot. And therefore, I kind of was in a frame of mind of of allowing that that kind of a supposition, a, a supposition I, which I think is founded on, on strong, uh, won't use evidence, but uh, strong implications that are all based on evidence. Well, I'm not clear about what the pilots uh, were objecting to or what, what was their position about this. The, well, the ones that we talked to, and uh, they were strong enough that they just didn't want to go. They, they didn't want to go there on this. Their objection was, your, this is a supposition. In fact, they would say a wild supposition. And... Uh, I'll just tell you what I did at this point. Uh, I mean, one path was to just look for other 9-11 truth pilots until hopefully we'd come upon one that is not as reluctant. But I thought maybe what I could do is, is invite a NASA test pilot whose whole career was with different types of airplanes and uh, it's possible, since I was at this uh, flight test center in California, and it's now called Neil Armstrong Flight Research Center. It was, it was had a different name when I was there. Uh, those pilots have, I think, a, a better possibility of of being interested. The, the, what I did is I sent an email to the the NASA retiree email list, and I invited any pilot or aerospace engineer from that center uh, <clears throat> to help us out. And I said what I thought, based just on the technical 
side of it. It was Flight 77, the one into the Pentagon, was the most was among the most interesting flights ever. And I think that's true. And I think that was uh, an appealing factor that brought, well, brought four people, one of them a pilot, the other three engineers, uh, got back to me and says, they all said, include me. Excellent. So we've got some fresh eyes uh, from qualified people looking at this. We do. And what kinds of reactions have you seen? Well, what we've had is problems getting information to them. The one in particular, the test pilot, that I'm most interested in having him review it. Uh, <clears throat> we didn't want to use a YouTube video because we didn't know if that'd get us in trouble. So uh, we've been trying to find other ways to send him a video. It would be it was a short video. Uh, 14 minutes long that that made the the points I've been talking about, at least some of them. And uh, today I was hoping that we would get this uh, kind of taken care of where he had a chance to look at it and could make some comments back. But we finally decided today that I would, uh, well, Bob uh, offered to make a short uh, PowerPoint presentation that made the same points that the video made. So he's doing that today, and we'll probably have it ready to send out tomorrow. Excellent. Now, is, is the video someplace where we can link to it and send people there to look at it? Well, it's not. Uh, we don't want to send people to a video that we can't even transmit to, to a known person out there who's trying to get it onto his his uh, computer. So we've got to go further downstream before we make it available to the public. And again, if he's not comfortable with it, then we're going to hold off and see what needs to be done. Uh, I'm just, I'm, well, both Bob and I are, are uh, Holding on that point, we've got to have some uh, knowledge, knowledgeable people, like a peer review, that uh, say, okay, that's uh, that sounds solid. It's, it's good enough for the public. Sounds good. So what are some of the reasons that you call this flight, um, from a technical perspective, it was among the most interesting flights ever? And what are the aspects of the flight of 77 that would make you say that? Well, most, most of it depends on the final part, the final leg, because it was beyond the red line. It was beyond what the plane is designed to do, but it appeared to have been in control, in control of, of uh, the system or the however it was controlled. And uh, being as close to the ground as it was and as fast as it was, it was in the transonic region and you've got shockwaves uh, involved there. And those are, uh, that's not, I don't know of any case where a, a plane has flown that close to the ground intentionally. And I think it was intentional. And 
was in control until the crash. It was still uh, the bank, the the instrument recording the bank was at zero bank at the time it impacted, even though it wasn't just before that. It was it was still maneuvering to the to reach that point. Interesting. Uh, and there's been controversy about uh, the you know what what the uh, what the data about this shows. Whether you know there's been all sorts of controversy about people who've tried to replicate this flight on flight simulators and whether they could do it or whether they couldn't. The same also applies to the equally extremely high speed, low altitude flights into the Trade Center. Uh, in all of those cases, there have been people who argued that or actually tried it. They got on simulators and found it very, very difficult or impossible to match the performance of these alleged 9-11 hijacker pilots who couldn't even fly Cessnas. But then there have yeah. been others who claimed that, well, no, you actually could do it. Uh, so there, there's been a back and forth about this. Maybe you could comment on your perspective. Well, <clears throat> uh, the planes into the train center, we don't have the flight data recorders. Uh, officially, they never were found, but uh, Mike Berger tells us that they were found. And if you go to 911truth.org, he's got an article on that, how they were found and who found them. But we don't have the records to analyze. Uh, no, no, just just quickly, was it was it the FBI, apparently, that, that just took them away when they were found? Uh, I did. I don't know the details. I, I I didn't. I don't recall what I read when I read the article. It was quite a while back, so right. I can't go into that. Yeah. Uh, but we do. We do have the records for the Pentagon airplane, and that's that's what uh, gives us the ability to really analyze what's there. That is. Uh, hard evidence, and then we're now finding out that there are apparently other things that didn't didn't uh, didn't go to the flight data recorder, I guess, because they were not part of the standard equipment. Interesting. And so if, if you can actually prove or at least make a really strong case that there were these sort of extraneous uh, things that didn't make it to the flight data recorder, that would be a very, very powerful argument for uh, you know those trying to disprove the official story. And of course, the official story is already uh, rather dicey here with with the you know Hani Hanjour, who the 9/11 Commission said was the best of the four hijacker pilots, and yet he was so bad that he couldn't uh, even be allowed to solo and assess the training aircraft. The idea that he made this, especially the final leg of this approach, uh, is highly dubious to say the least. But if you can add to that uh, this evidence that there was something going on uh, in terms of the guidance of the flight that was outside, that was not recorded on the flight data recorder, of course, that would also uh, add to the case that the official story of this flight cannot be true. Uh, how, just how how weak is the official story here? Is it is it ludicrous and it should obviously be thrown out? Or is it uh, there are some people at Scientists for 9-11 Truth who basically support the official story of this flight and say that it could have been piloted by a human, perhaps even Hani Hanjur, if somehow 
his piloting skills were infinitely better than what we think they were. Well, okay, the best way to approach that question is uh, going back to the changing of frequencies, uh, in some case very rapidly. Uh, the apparent reason for doing that is as a way of calibrating the inertial reference unit. Uh, what was needed at the beginning of the final leg was a precise knowledge of where the plane is in the sky and to make sure that it was at the very right place in the sky over the ground to begin that final descent. It had to be ex uh, precisely there. And the only way to do that is to make the onboard uh, knowledge, it's like a memory, but it was inside this uh, inertial reference unit, which is made up of a lot of gyros and stable platform and, and that kind of thing. It need to be as, as accurate as it possibly could be. And so it looks like what was being done up to the the point of that, or even back up uh, 14 minutes or 140 miles. If you if you uh, begin being very accurate, 140 miles short of starting, not the final approach, but starting the the uh, kind of the entry into the into the uh, D.C. area, Virginia. Uh, what they did is they they had a very a very uh, precise straight flight, and I, it it appeared to me like they were determining whether the plane was as accurate as, as it needed to be. Uh, but another interesting point is that it was being uh, flown directly out of a a ground station in West Virginia, but it wasn't tuned to that ground station. So normally if you're trying to fly very accurately on a radial out of a ground station, you'd tune your uh, nav radio to that ground station. That's another reason to think that it was a, some other radio. Now, how do we how do we know it was using that particular ground station? Well, because the the radial that it was flying pre, very precisely on emanated from that ground station. Hmm. Interesting. And so uh, it had to be that ground station. It was the only one that that had uh, the radial out on the direction it was flying to another ground station. Uh, and it did it extremely accurately. It, it was, uh, and, and therefore it was, it had calibrated itself very accurately. If you go back to when the plane took off at Dulles, uh, the IRU was uh, not accurate at all. In fact, Pilots for Truth uh, wrote an article or did quite about a quite a lot of uh, study of the fact that it apparently didn't take off on the runway or it didn't, it wasn't at the right gate. 
but all of that had to do with the IRU inertial, inertial uh, reference unit was not calibrated well. But it was calibrated well enough to fit within FA requirements. And the way it is is that uh, the FA has, has quite loose requirements and uh, therefore it doesn't take a lot of time on the ground to uh, do the calibration. It's probably something that the airlines lobbied for. Uh, but once it gets on flight, then the normal procedure is to uh, slowly calibrate the IRU as they fly along. But normally they wouldn't be flying uh, in touch with so many ground stations. Another thing about the ground stations that they were, uh, when I say jumping, they're changing their radio frequency too. They may not be changing their direction of flight, but they are changing uh, which ground station they're tuned into. And the kind of what's going on there is that uh, the computer will make a prediction of where the plane should be at the end of some short segment when it tuned into the ground station and how much it drifted before it is turned away. And from that information, then the calibration can automatically uh, kind of tighten in what the IRU is, is saying that the airplane is at. Okay. Is there, is there anything particularly strange then about the way that this got calibrated during the flight or not? Well, some, yeah, it was very unusual. It's not typical of any flight across the country. Uh, in fact, there was one, one uh, <clears throat> small section where the plane flew uh, kind of a curved path that was, that was equal distance from a, ground station, but but not tuned into that ground station with a, uh, with a regular equipment. So that's another example of apparently a, another radio or this uh, ground station that was tuned way over the horizon. The other possibility is it was actually tuned in to this close by station, but switched off when it came time to be recorded. That's just a hypothesis, but it, it, it was a possibility. I don't, have, I don't know how they would go about knowing when the sampling happens on the downrated quarter, but, but that may be something that they know. Would there be any reason for them to do that? Uh, making that equal distance curve from a ground station, they were doing it while in a descent. And that would be a means of calibrating the uh, vertical dimension. Uh, most of the things are calibrating the lateral direction, but that is being a descent, you're changing altitude, but maintaining the same distance uh, from the ground station that you apparently are tuned into somehow or other because it's a equal distance from around it. The only way you can do that, you're not going to do it by uh, flying. You're going to do it by by having a uh, 
an autopilot. I don't know. I'm sure whether the autopilot was on then, so I shouldn't uh, shouldn't say. But probably it's being controlled by a uh, computed parameter. So these strange aspects of the flight, um, just to make it clear, did they begin uh, after the turnaround during that last leg after the ostensible takeover by the hijackers? Or uh, was there anomalous activity on the first leg from Dulles to the point of turnaround? It apparent that uh, that third nav, wherever it is, was uh, most likely used as part of that 180-degree turn. Okay. So, so that's kind of where the anomalies start. Yes. Interesting. Okay. And... I'm still I'm, I'm wondering how I guess the one thing that you would agree with the uh, folks at Scientists for Knowledge and Truth who are more or less supporting the official version of this and saying that it's even conceivable that a human being, perhaps even somebody like Honey Hunter could have flown this, uh, is that you would agree with them that at least we uh, we believe that this is most likely an authentic flight uh, recorder uh, package of data that we've got here. And I guess what you're finding here, Dwayne, with these anomalies would presumably be uh, more evidence that this probably is authentic because if somebody were going to be trying to fake FDR data, which some of these other scientists say is, would be very difficult, if not impossible anyway, um, have putting in these anomalies would be completely insane, almost unthinkable. So, Maybe you guys all agree at this point that we should accept that this is probably authentic FDR data? Uh, there's every reason to believe <clears throat> that it's authentic. Every time there's been a question about something, a wiggle that didn't look like it was explainable, it turns out enough study you end up with, with uh, an explanation that fits everything else. So it's been very, very valuable. Uh, there was one thing I forgot to say earlier when you were asking about why some people have questions about the flight data recorder. Uh, originally, the flight data recorder, uh, the one that was sent from the NTSB, which is the agency that investigates airplane accidents, it, it had these uh, st kind of strange things that didn't appear to be right. The altitude was too high uh, as it approached, as it got to the Pentagon, and you wonder why that was happening. And it was it was finally determined. Uh, Warren Stutt was uh, a principal in in sorting that out, and and uh, realized uh, another person who's very important to this is uh, the late Frank Legg. Uh, he probably had the biggest role in, in realizing that there was about another four seconds of flight that didn't get recorded, that uh, the uh, kind of the check and balance system in the recording had uh, determined that, that there was a, a fault in the data and so uh, discarded it at the end. But that was, uh, you know, I, I don't know enough of the details to say anything about it. Uh, but uh, 
Warren Stutt wrote a software program to decode that the final four seconds. And that's not it's not inventing anything. It's it's making use of the uh, the final uh, zeros and ones in the record and interpreting it into engineering units. So once he did that, then the altitude was no longer too high when I got to the Pentagon. So there's a, there is controversy over that because a lot of people don't want to accept that final four seconds that was later interpreted. Interesting. Uh, so essentially, uh, you would agree then with uh, with people like uh, David Chandler and Ken Jenkins and so on that we should probably accept that this uh, actual uh, commercial airliner that was flying under the rubric of Flight 77 actually did make this flight path that we're told as reflected on the flight data recorder and did end its flight by barreling into the Pentagon at a kind of ridiculous speed. Um, so that's... Yeah. Yeah. So and that's that, of right. course, is, is different from what we used to think. And and you, you know, you're one of the people. In fact, you're probably the single most responsible person for opening my mind to the possibility that that's the case. I, I used to be very skeptical about the idea of any big plane crash at the Pentagon at all. And your work on this uh, has been the most responsible for convincing me that I was probably wrong. And that it sounds like based on my current understanding that there's a very strong case that, in fact, this did happen. But mm -hmm. that, as you say, the anomalies with this flight, uh, together with everything else we know about it, uh, make it highly unlikely, if not downright impossible, that Hani Hanjur or probably any human pilot would have been responsible for this, that there was uh, technical uh, flying <laughs> going on, some level of high-level help, uh, presumably mm -hmm. perhaps an autopilot component or some kind of remote flying component. Uh, how, how do we figure out? how that worked besides, you know, what you've already told us. Well, it's, it's quite difficult because there's a feel system. They call it a feel system on uh, these airplanes that will move the, well, if it's on autopilot, it will move the control wheel and control column uh, as if a pilot was using it. The pilots can, can, uh, rest their hands and it will fly. But that means that if you look at the uh, traces, the wheel will be moving and the column will be moving, but that doesn't mean that a, a pilot is the one that's making the input. Right, interesting stuff. So bottom line is that your work here, even if it does reinforce the idea that this large commercial jetliner somehow did barrel into the Pentagon at the most convenient place uh, for the Pentagon itself uh, that did the least damage, except to the accountants who were looking for the missing $2.3 trillion, uh, that, that that story, it turns out, is, is quite likely true. However, the official story, uh, according to which it was these hijackers that did it, is uh, almost certainly false. And uh, given that, okay, we only have a couple of minutes left, and I think we've, we've covered this, and I just have a couple of minutes left to ask for your comments on the issues around the videos of the plane crashes into the Twin Towers. I had I just talked to someone on Skype 
who has uh, come up with a couple of uh, very good copies of the videos that were broadcast that day. Uh, I think the most broadcast uh, network TV videos of those uh, crashes, or one of the crash into the South Tower, of course. The North Tower, all we have is the very suspicious Naudet video. But for the uh, the North Tower, the second, uh, or the South Tower, the second crash, we have a whole bunch of videos, amateur videos, and then there's this uh, network video. No, actually, two he showed me at NBC, I think, in the New York Times video. And interestingly enough, when you go frame by frame, there there's uh, one frame where the plane has entered the building, but the building looks exactly normal. So the plane has just disappeared into the building and left not the slightest scratch on the building. And uh, are you familiar with any videography work that is done to explain how this could happen? Uh, no. I, uh, my own thought is it could be something that was concocted at one of the studios, but I just really don't want to imagine. But I, I, I think uh, something that Wayne Costi has come up with, I think is worth you knowing about. Uh, he's analyzed both of the planes hitting the towers. Overall, he has a theory of the, uh, the propulsive, let's it's commonly called explosions, but uh, he's got an approach. He used propulsive demolition as a term that that he suggested, and I think it fits it right well. And the idea is these uh, panels of nanothermite that end up propelling the main the main floors, the big open office floors, out and away, and they actually are are burning like a rocket is burning. That same analogy. But uh, interestingly, with the plane crashes into the towers, uh, his theory is that the planes struck those some of those panels that are around the elevators, and they went off. So for Tower 1, there actually is an explosion that is out to the uh, left-hand side of where the plane crashed, and it goes out in the air. You can see it. Well, uh, Wayne thinks that's actually the nanothermite uh, propulsive thing that went out there and did its fireworks. Well, and most you know, I'll have, have to get Wayne on and talk about that. But, you know, we hit, we hit the bumper music. I'm sorry, okay. Dwayne. Okay. I'd like, like to actually hear more about that. But uh, it's been a very uh, interesting interview. I hope you guys get that uh, PowerPoint and video online, and I'll send it out there to people. Stay tuned to truthjihad.com. Click on the radio schedule link. Stay updated. So thank you. Uh, God bless Dwayne Dietz. Always great talking with you. Keep up the good yeah, work. Enjoy it. Okay. Take care. Wayne Deets, back in the next hour with the 9-11 activist. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after this message.